This is On Diversity, a podcast series by the Institute of Policy Studies Singapore. I'm your host, Ong So Chin. Today's episode is called Reclaiming Dementia. Dementia is a disease which has no cure, and it's a difficult beast to manage, simply because it robs the person of his personality and his dignity. In an end-of-life survey by the Institute of Policy Studies, respondents said they wanted dignity and some sense of agency in their old age. Dementia takes all this away. It also takes a toll on family members and caregivers who see their loved ones disappearing emotionally and mentally before their eyes. Today's episode will attempt to unpack this complex disease. Are there different ways to address this condition that could yield positive results? I'm joined by two guests. Both have had personal experiences with loved ones with dementia, and both are now dedicating their lives to helping the rest of society deal with dementia. One of them is Dr. Chen Shiling, a physician with a special interest in vulnerable persons, including those with dementia. Hello, Shiling. Hi. And the other is Johnson So, founder and director of a company called Sandcare Asia, which practices music therapy on dementia patients. More on that later. Hi, Johnson. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming bright and early this yes, morning. Yes. A little too early uh, for most of us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I guess let's start the program by um, describing dementia. Now, Shilling and Johnson, both of you have personal stories about dementia with your loved ones. Shilling, if I remember correctly, it affected your grandmother, yes, right? Yes, it did. Actually, to be perfectly accurate, it actually has affected three people in my life thus far. And I'm sure there'll be more to come in the years ahead. And the three people were all people who were close to me. And one of them was my paternal grandmother, so my dad's mom. She was the one who brought me up. And so I would say that my first brush with dementia or my first inkling of what dementia was actually all about came about when I was 17 years old. At that time, there was so little that people knew about dementia all those years back. And what happened at that time was that I just suddenly realised that my grandmother, my beloved grandmother, was behaving in a very, very strange way. She was making phone calls to our relatives, our family members, and said that she hadn't eaten for three days. And she said that we were starving her. She said that someone was hitting her in the head. And I was so confused. And I was upset. I was angry, actually, with my grandmother at that point in time because I had no idea what she was doing. And so as a 17-year-old, in my mind, my grandmother was telling lies. And that was actually the beginning of how we started slowly to discover that this was dementia that was actually affecting her. Right. And who were the other two people that were The affected? other one was my maternal grandmother, so my mom's mom. Yeah, she too was affected with dementia. And she too has passed away with and from dementia, just like my other grandma. And the third person is actually this elderly gentleman that I got to know when I was a medical student. He had leprosy from the time he was in his 20s. And I got to know him late in his life and perhaps at a very important time in my life when I was studying to become a doctor. I got to know him really well in the last 10 years of his life and I visited him in his home. We became really, really close. He sort of adopted me unofficially as his like granddaughter because he was single and he was alone. He was the most remarkable man. But sadly, he lost his independence towards the last few years of his life because he developed dementia as well. So all three of them. Mm. And by that time, at the end, you had an understanding of what dementia was by then, right? With this elderly friend of yours? I would yours? say still not as much as now because he died again with and from dementia about eight years ago. 
So I would say that if I had the knowledge that I have today, the experiences that I have today, I would have been able to care and to do a lot more for all three of them during the time when they were suffering from the consequences of dementia. Right. And Johnson, you have similar experiences too, I mean, with your dad, right? Well, the experience for me with my dad is a lot less, I suppose, traumatic as compared (laughs) to what Shilling has uh, mentioned so far. My dad has dementia, but I think he's pretty cognitively active and aware up to the last days. So his case wasn't so serious in terms of um, behaviours and losing himself in totality. Yeah, but, but then again, we obviously had him diagnosed and we did realise that he had dementia. So my background essentially is I'm a music man. You know, I work in record companies all, all right. my life. That's where we yes, met. Let's, like we first let's, met let's, and let's you not go back company. there. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go back how far we, we've, yeah. we've come. Yeah. yeah, so anyway, my background is music. I've been record company, so I know music at the back of my hands. So I thought I found out a lot more about dementia by doing online research to see how we can engage seniors with dementia. So I found out that using reminiscence music is one very effective way of engaging with seniors. So I tried using some of the music that I knew my dad liked on him and it worked wonderfully, you know. So, so that gave me a lot of encouragement and impetus to start the company. How did your dad respond to well, the music? Well, obviously, you know, it was all his favourite songs. So you saw a different side of him. I mean, in general, he's always jovial anyway. But then again, it brought him to another level in terms of engagement, communication. Yeah, so it was wonderful. Yeah, which reminds me, because I'm not sure whether any of you have seen this movie. I saw a trailer for it called Alive yes. Inside. Mm. I think it was a documentary that came out about five, six years ago. And the trailer, I just saw they had snippets of elderly patients with dementia and how they responded remarkably to yeah. music. Actually, that's the same documentary that caught my attention when I was right. doing research. So I found out the company that actually did this program is called Music and Memories. So I actually got in touch with them when I wanted to find out how we can possibly extend the program to people here so I spoke to the representatives in Australia. And, well, they weren't too keen to do anything outside of their sphere at this point in time. So I thought, you know, why wait? If I can try to do something about it, let's just go ahead. Great. So what has the response been like so far? Where have you tried out your music therapy? Well, I started the company in late 2016. So I came out with this program based on the research I've done. Uh, the program is called Strike a Note. So what it does is we try and find out the personal life history of each individual and we curate personalised music playlists based on the person's background and history. So what we're trying to do is try and find the silver bullets, the songs that really resonate with each individual. It could be a song which this person walked down the wedding aisle to, you know, name his first child. So it's things like this that we hope will try to reunite the person and bring the person back you know, to where he was before. So the program was launched in 2017 and we had this program implemented across various senior activity centres like ADA, nursing homes like St Andrews, nursing home, NTUC Health, Bright Hill Evergreen Home. So yeah, we've seen fantastic results with a lot of seniors that have been put on the program. Yeah, there's this particular lady that we had on the program. So she had severe behaviour issues. It's not that she wants to, but every time you try engaging her, well, the first sentence you ask her, assuming, oh, Madam A, you know, how are you today? 
and her first sentence will start with a Hawkeye expletive. <laughs> and then she said, no, I'm no good. <laughs> and then you ask her, why? What's wrong? And then again, she started with a Hawking expletive. I said, I don't know, you know. So we had her on the program. And after a few weeks, it's amazing how music can calm a person. So when she's on the program, she's like a little angel, you know. She just sits there, she listens, and then she can even engage in active conversation with you. She can even talk sometimes. So every time I visit the nursing home and I press the buzzer and I walk in the door, the nurses, when they see me, they're like, oh, Johnson's here, Johnson's here, pull out the chair, you know. So they know that. You know. Auntie's young boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. No, but it brings a lot of peace, not just to the patient, yeah. but right. to the people all around them as well. Because inevitably, she creates commotion amongst people around her unknowingly. Yeah. Right. So Shiling, as a doctor, have you seen this therapy at Oh, work? yes. What is your experience oh, with yes, it? Oh, yes. I just wish, Johnson, you appeared earlier. <laughs> because if you did, then my grandmothers my and the Akong that I was so close to could have definitely benefited from this. So really, I wish there was this a long time ago. But definitely, as a physician, I have worked with Johnson on a number of patients together. And I have seen firsthand, really, the impact of what his work can do for persons with dementia. And it is amazing. It's amazing how someone who is really, really quiet and withdrawn starts singing and tapping his fingers to the music, how they start smiling. And even when they're sick, I remember one very, very clear incident in my mind. Johnson, you'll remember this as well, I'm sure. One of our favourite patients together. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know who he is. And I think if his family is listening to this, they will know who he is as well. But remember when he was in hospital and he had this really bad wound on his foot. The nurses had to do dressing for him and it was really painful. And what Johnson did, and that was really... He always goes extra mile. So what he did was he didn't just see... He usually sees the, the person's dimension, their home environment. But this time around, he actually went down to the hospital to see him. And he put on the music for this very, very lovely gentleman when he was having his wound dressing done. And it helped. It helped to distract him. It helped to ease the pain. And this man is an extremely resilient man. And that's how we know and knew that it was extremely painful for him because he was so resilient and yet he was in pain. But right. when the music was put on, right? Johnson, remember that? Yeah. Yeah, and then you can see that it just lifted his mood. Just calmed down? Yeah, he, he calmed down. It lifted his mood and he was even tapping his fingers, I think, yeah. to the yeah. music wow. while <laughs> this terrible wound dressing was being done. I mean, we don't even want to look at it. Yeah, but, it's true. Oh my God. Yeah, true. so yeah. that's what it can do. So what is it? I mean, the core of this therapy really, right? We've mentioned it before. It's this person-centered therapy that we're talking about where because we know dementia basically robs a person of his personality completely and that's very distressing not only for the person but for the families and caregivers involved, right? So I guess what is the standard way of treating dementia now? We just administer drugs? Is that what it is? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is an alternative, I guess, right? Shilin, you've mentioned this a lot of times before in our conversations, but focusing on the person, that's something you believe very strongly yes, in. Yes, right? absolutely. Completely. As I always say, when I speak, I speak not just as a physician, but I speak as a caregiver as well. So I see it really, truly from multiple different perspectives. I would say that currently, in terms of dementia care, when I speak to families and, and caregivers, I usually tell them that there are three main areas 
that we can address when we are actually trying to treat or manage or support someone with dementia, one would be using medications. The purpose of medications, there are two main groups. One is what we call cognitive enhancers that we actually use to slow down the decline of dementia. Like you said right at the beginning, dementia is not something that's curable. So whatever cognitive enhancer we can give to the person merely slows down that degeneration. The other group of medications that we do give to persons with dementia will be the ones that help to address some of these perhaps behaviours and mood-related issues because there is a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of fear. There is depression as well when, when dementia hits you. What I described with my grandma, you know, the paranoia, all of that, that comes together sometimes because the brain is changing. And as the brain changes, you see all of these things. The second area that we would always say helps in supporting people with dementia will be engagement and stimulation. So what kind of engagement and stimulation? We would always say cognitive and physical. That's how I would put it. So you stimulate the mind, stimulate your mental faculties, you do physical exercise, and very importantly, social interaction as well is extremely important. Um, And then I always tell people that there is a third part to dementia care, which a lot of people neglect speaking about, and that is the human part of dementia care. And I think out of all these three parts, giving medications is the easiest thing you can do. As a physician, I would say that. It's the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. Just pop a pill. But what does it really do for that person with dementia? If I pop a pill, but I do nothing to engage that person, and what's worse, I don't look at that person as a person, then what's the point? I give you a concrete example. My grandmother, she got lost in the community years ago. She was an extremely tough, independent lady. And she got lost in the community. And what did my family do immediately? We told her not to go out anymore. So she was given medications for the paranoia. She was given medications for the dementia itself. But we stopped her from being who she was. And that was the worst thing that we could have done to her. Right. So you mentioned as well before in our conversations, like COVID-19, we're talking about isolation, right? And the stress that it places, especially on the elderly. And we tell them like exactly what you're saying. Don't go out, stay at home, lock the doors, right? And I guess with people with dementia, that's, that's even worse. That has an even deeper impact, right? Absolutely. Really? I think for all of us, routines are important, right? We all know that. We all get a bit disoriented when our routines get disrupted and things like that. For people with dementia, even more so, one of the key things to remember about dementia is that there is a problem with recent memory, which means that long-term memories stay intact for a long time. So things that they have been doing for years, those are things that they remember really well. These are the habits that matter to them. You will often find a person with dementia telling you that they have to take care of their grandchild. And the grandchild is already 20 years old. My grandma did that the same. She was like that. And but what do you do? You just validate that memory, right? Because that's important. Absolutely. To yeah. You know, sometimes it's almost like there is more authenticity, like how we are. We often decide what we want to say, right? Like what I'm doing now, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I say this? <laughs> but sometimes when a person develops dementia, then what happens is that you lose a little bit of that. You lose a little bit of that inhibition. And so a lot of things come out and they are a little bit more raw. But a lot of the things that come out are actually really genuine. And one of the things we always say is address the underlying emotion. Because most of the time when they say they are, they want to look for this grandchild, you know, like my grandma, when she said those things, it was because she, she was just actually really speaking about how much this grandchild mattered to her. 
Right. So emotion, I mean, that's what music taps into, the emotional memory, the emotional core, like Johnson, you mentioned earlier. We associate music with important occasions in our lives, our you know, weddings, even funerals, birthdays and all that, right? So with this isolation now because of COVID-19, how is that affecting your work with dementia patients? Because you can't really go yeah, see them. Yeah, it's true. Because obviously with social distancing, you know, not just seniors who are in their residential homes, those that are at senior activity centres, there's social distancing as well. So they have to keep to a group of five, no physical activity, no singing in case of their saliva droplets spreading. <laughs> yeah. So we have to find ways to adapt. Because obviously, like you mentioned, with the social isolation, when, and what Shilling mentioned as well, when seniors have their routines interrupted, they go into downward spiral. So we have uh, subsequently rolled other programmes that uses Reminiscence music as well. The second program is called Return to the Tea Dance. That is... Return to yes, the Tea yes, Dance. Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. Essentially because all we... Well, maybe we don't know because we're not in front of the generation. <laughs> tea dances were very popular for our seniors growing up in the 50s and 60s. So again, because my program are all built on Reminiscence, so we try to jog their memory. So the program involves them coming together, listening to music, which they love, on silent disco headphones, and they dance. Yeah. Wow. So when we first talked about this program to a lot of administrators, they were like, yeah, this will work in the Western countries because, you know, the <laughs> Australians, the Americans, they are, you know, less shy. Less yes, you know, They will right. get out their dance. But when we first rolled out the program with a handful of piloted senior activity centres, when we first pushed up the music, the seniors were immediately on their feet. <laughs> you know, they were, They're on the joge and the yeah, ring so, and the cha-cha. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. You know, disco lights, you know, they were just dancing, <laughs> having a great time. Well, that program worked wonders. But again, with the pandemic, we can't do that anymore. So what we did is we partnered with a government agency and we rolled out an online program of Return to the T-Dance. So we call this the virtual Return to the T-Dance. So again, we started small, humble. We had a handful of senior activity centres came on board for the pilot, about five. We have less than 50, you know, seniors. And this week, the numbers swell up to 700. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's, That's a lot of virtual it's dancing. a lot of virtual dancing, yeah. It, it's amazing looking at all the little, small little screens in front of you on your computer. You see everyone just standing on their feet <laughs> and moving. Yeah. That must be quite wonderful. But Johnson, you mentioned something as an important point. You said there was an initial resistance when you suggested the program, thinking that, oh, it works in Western countries, may not work here for whatever reasons, right? So a therapy like this, music therapy, you would say, I guess, it's not scientific in a way. I mean, there would be some well, detractors. I mean, anecdotally, yes. there are success stories for sure. We've seen them. My question is, is there a resistance in Singapore to adapting programs like this? And Shilling chip in as well, if you feel... Yeah, okay, I've been same. doing this since early 2017. Yeah, ah, I'm still okay. the advocacy. Till then. <laughs> so I enjoy what I do. So that's fantastic. I, I actually am really happy to share what I do as well. So I get invited like to Shilling's cluster of caregivers in the north eastern region. I talk about the programs I do and I talk about what I do constantly to people from the care institutions to hopefully get them to switch their mindset a little bit. But I think a lot of it has also to do with costs because the first question and always the last question. It's a very Singaporean <laughs> question. How much does it cost? How much does right? it cost and is this funded by the government? 
<laughs> yeah, so unfortunately, again, back to your question, there are research that's been done, but not in okay. Singapore, unfortunately, for programs like this. So it's been proven overseas and research papers have been written in, in the West, even in the East, like in Taiwan, Japan, they have written papers that prove that people with dementia who uses personalized music can help a lot in their care and increase their quality of life. Well, I mean, I definitely think that makes sense to me. I mean, and Johnson, you and I are both music people. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned we first met when I was a music journalist in the Straits Times and Johnson was a music executive wow. with a record company. <laughs> like five, five years so ago. So we have a connection. We have a connection with music there. So yeah, that totally resonates with me. But Shiling, as a doctor, I mean, do you feel there should be some mindset change? in how we approach illnesses like dementia. Yes, absolutely. I think sometimes, you know how we always talk about labels, right? How we label someone and things like that. We use it a lot when we talk about children, right? When we say we shouldn't label kids and stuff like that. But I think it's the same, you know, throughout life, be it an adult or an aging person, Yeah, that we sometimes, it's important to make a diagnosis. I think it's crucial. I mean, for all of us, particularly those of us with personal experience of family members with dementia, we would know that it was actually quite difficult before the diagnosis was made because you couldn't quite figure out why this is happening and why they are behaving in this way. But I think after that diagnosis is made and you are given the information about this particular condition, then I think the whole mindset should start to really shift then, in a sense, because the condition doesn't make the person, right? This person has been this person for so many years of their lives. And the way I see it, particularly with dementia, is that we all will grow old, exactly like what you said. We all will develop various conditions and <clears throat> medical illnesses along the way. And we all will die from something, right? That is something that we all know will happen. And it's just that all of us will take a slightly different path towards that final end, which is death. And dementia is just one of those paths. There are so many other different paths. And the same way we say that even if you have some other degenerative condition or if you have some other life-threatening condition, you must continue to live your life. I think it is the same for dementia, that people with dementia must be encouraged to live their lives. One thing that I think happens, and I alluded to it earlier on, is that very often the person with dementia, they want to continue living their life. They want to retain the old. They want to continue to give meaning to their own lives and to other people's lives. They want to continue to do the things. If they could cook, they want to continue cooking. If they could go marketing, they want to continue marketing. If they could pick up their grandchildren from school, they want to continue doing these things. It's us. We stop yep. them. Mm. We mm. stop them because of so many different reasons, right? Because right. we think they can't do it. We think that it's embarrassing, their behaviours. You know, we think it's unsafe. And that's another thing. Like COVID-19 also brings that about. People don't allow their family members to go out because they are worried that it's unsafe because they don't want to put on their mask. But I think there needs to be a balance. Well, I think yeah. it's rushing on that point. You know, I think public education will probably play a very, very big part. Yeah, true, because yeah. obviously with this stigma, everyone lives with this stigma forever if you're not aware of what's the true meaning behind it. There are a lot of public education programs for other things. Obviously, the fight for diabetes has been taken to the forefront. Dengue fever is, again, something that we're combating. It's something that we do. Actually, dengue fever, public awareness programs have been going on for a long time, you know. Mm, the Mozzie, the Mozzie wipeout. wipeout. Yeah, for, for yeah. dementia, I think there are 
certain pockets that's been done in terms of public education. Again, I think places like Yishun, they've come out with this dementia community that helps look after seniors who are lost or who may need help. But again, I think across the island, maybe more can be done. Maybe we can get mass media involved as well. Yeah, Sure, yeah, I think yeah. that's good. Then I think ultimately, right, what I'm hearing from both of you is that the mindset change should be not so much treating the disease, but treating the person looking at the person as a whole, right? I think that's quite important. And that's something I guess we would all want for ourselves growing old as we get older, which leads me to my next question. Have you thought about your own old age? And what kind of old age do you want? (laughs) Yes, I have. I think about it. I think about my own old age. If I live to old age, I mean, as a physician, right? I see all these things, right? So I think growing old in the first place is a privilege because not all of us get there. Some of us don't get that opportunity. If I do get there, I know as well that I will never be able to control what happens to myself when I grow old. I will not be able to control my own death in that sense. And I wouldn't want to as well, because I think this is what life and humanity is all about. All I hope is that when the time comes, when I think about it, and this is what I say to families as well, what do you think you will want most of all at that time in your life if you have dementia? What would you value the most of all? And most of the time, after everything, after everything is said and done, they would say they just want to be with the people they love. And they just want to continue to be able to give to the people they love and for the people they love to be around them. And that's it. It's just relationships. Yeah. It's very moving. Johnson, what are your thoughts? Uh, I have a lot of sympathy for caregivers of people with dementia. So I always say if you develop dementia, maybe it's, I don't know, for selfish reasons just for the better because you don't know what's going on you know what you are inflicting on people around you looking after someone with dementia is a 24-7 job and it can cause a lot of stress and a lot of grief I hope I will not be the person giving grief <laughs> to my yeah. caregivers I, yeah. I, I don't know we always talk amongst our families and we, we hope in, we can have euthanasia legalised in time to come <laughs> if I am not able to care for myself to the yeah. point I wish it could be an easier way to go than to actually stress people all around me. <laughs> yeah. Johnson, that, that's, there is value in suffering. <laughs> I have to step in, in here. <laughs> really? There is. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm more aligned to what Johnson's thinking. <laughs> oh I no, think, I'm uh, outnumbered here. <laughs> then I have to speak louder. I would rather not be a burden to my caregivers, to my family. And yeah, I mean, I also feel like sometimes it's easier if the mind goes before the body because... Yeah, and you don't really know, yeah? I mean, that's a selfish way of thinking, like you said, because I don't really know that I'm soiling myself or whatever, or I'm acting gaga. But it is a stress on my family, and I don't want that either. So, yeah. Did you guys read this article about someone who wrote about how his mom cared for his grandmother? I've seen the headline, but no, I didn't read it. Yeah, it was an article about how his mom cared for his grandmother. And the grandmother is his paternal grandmother because his mom was widowed. And the grandmother, the father's mother, had dementia. And so the mom was a single mom bringing up two young kids. And she took care of her mother-in-law in in that sense. Yeah, and he spoke about what he saw how he witnessed his mom doing all of those things with a lot of pain, with a lot of suffering, but with a lot of resilience and with a lot of love. And he said two things that I think really encapsulates this. He said, number one, now when he talks to his mom, after everything is over, he speaks to his mom and he realises that his mom doesn't talk about 
the difficulties. She doesn't speak about the burden that her mother-in-law, and bear in mind, mother-in-law, <laughs> she doesn't speak about the burden, the difficulties, the challenges. She speaks about the good things, about the good things of that person, wow. despite wow. everything that has happened. And the second thing that I think really, really is moving as well is this, this child who has now grown up and has done well in his life. He says that now he knows what it means to love. Well, he's a yeah. good role model, Absolutely. right? He's a good role model. So he passed it down to generations. And he sees yeah. the redemption in that suffering, you know? Well. And perhaps there, there is definitely value in that because if we're going to be an aging society, we need to pass down these values to the yeah, next generation. Yeah, but what frightens right? me as well is again with the shrinking population size. You know, mm. so, you know, we have smaller family units. Some are yeah. not even having children. So what happens to the oldies when they grow old and they don't have someone? Society <laughs> has to step up at some point. We don't know, but that, that's where the public education comes in. I think that that's really important. But okay, I mean, this has been a fantastic spirited discussion. I'd like to end off with a last question. What music would make you come alive? <laughs> I'm biased, you know, so it's easy. <laughs> Anything from the 80s. Know. Anything from the 80s or <laughs> the yeah. 80s Is this supposed to like yeah. tell people your age? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I started listening to music in my mother's womb, so... <laughs> okay, okay. Explains a lot. And Shilling, yourself? Well, let me think. What was I listening to in the car just now? If We Hold On Together. That kind of song. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah. So the I'll start putting together your playlist. No worries. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know. Stuff. I'll let you know. I, I tell you now. I'll let you know my husband's one. Mm, uh, he's got okay, okay. <laughs> Well, that's great. So we're ending off on a nice musical note. So thank you. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you, Shilling and Johnson, for your time and for sharing your insights. Thank you for having us. Thank you. On Diversity is a podcast inspired by the Institute of Policy Studies Managing Diversity's research program. We're available wherever you get your podcasts. Swipe on the cover art to see the show notes for more info on this episode or visit us on our website, ipscommons.sg. Do subscribe to be notified when we have a new episode. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend or give us a five-star review. It really helps other people find us. I'm your host, Ong So Chin, reminding you to always keep your body healthy and your mind open. Goodbye. <laughs>